Are you on the right road? Are you ascending the right mountain? Are you on a truly biblical discipleship journey? Well, if the answer is yes, then you are obviously a zealous student of the Lord. Learning about God is your joy and passion. Today, we continue our study concerning the discipleship spiral. We're not only going to get a firm look at the spiral itself, we're also going to dig into the first leg of every disciple's journey because disciples of Christ know that he's worth knowing. The one true God of the universe has existed since eternity past in ultimate perfection. He spoke the cosmos into existence for his soul, honor, and glory. He moved heaven and earth to redeem mankind, even though we have nothing to offer him. And he's given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word. He deserves our worship. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our praise. I'm your host, A.M. Brucer, and this is the Celebration of God. Welcome back to our newest series called The Discipleship Spiral. Today, I'm going to explain what the spiral is, as well as discuss the first fourth of the discipleship journey. But before we do that, let me encourage you to carefully consider attending or hosting a Celebration of God conference this year. There are three options for this, and at least one of them may work for you. Number one, you could attend a Celebration of God conference where we, the Celebration of God staff, put on the entire event. We can do that at our location or at yours. Number two, a Celebration of God speaker could participate in your event. If you would like a speaker to add to your lineup, just let us know. And three, even if you don't have a church, camp, school, or other organization, you could host a private Celebration of God event. These private events involve you inviting friends over to your home for fellowship, and then I connect with all of you live via Zoom. I will give a personal challenge, take your questions, pray with you, and serve you and your group any way that I can. So I hope you'll consider how you might engage with the Celebration of God event this year. And actually, now that I think about it, joining me on the Wisdom app is kind of like participating in a live workshop as well. You can follow the Wisdom link in the description of today's episode to get the app and follow me at A.M. Brewster. Then you can connect on Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we discuss Friday's episode in more detail. That means that this coming Monday, we'll be talking in more detail about what we're unveiling today. You can not only listen to that uh, particular talk, though, you can actually join me live to ask your questions, get counsel, and add to the discussion. So I guess that's a fourth way you can participate in a Celebration of God live teaching event this year. How cool is that? And lastly, be sure to check out our episode notes and transcripts available on our blog. And now let's get a firm understanding of the discipleship spiral. On our last episode, we zoomed way out so that we could see the full picture of the disciple's journey. We learned that a disciple is a student. Therefore, a disciple of God is a student of God. And as a student, we're expected to learn about God and to live like God. But the journey of learning about God and living like God is not as simple as a straight line drawn on a map. The imagery of a journey is a valid one when we're talking about discipleship, but we know that the Christian life is one of ups and downs, hardships and blessings, mountaintop experiences, and sometimes even the valley of the shadow of death. So the journey of a disciple of Christ would look less like a straight line and more like a twisting, turning path that goes up and down all the time. However, in order to simplify the imagery, but not to make it too simple, I'm going to liken the journey of a disciple to a spiral. Now, lest you have the wrong picture in your mind of a plane and a nosedive spiraling out of control toward the ground, allow me to set the parameters for this spiral. Imagine, if you will, a mountain. It consists of one very tall peak, and the path to the top is a road that winds all the way around and around and around the mountain until it reaches the top. 
This is the imagery we want in our minds when we're talking about the discipleship spiral. Now, what you should see in your mind's eye consists of two main images at this point. There's the mountain itself, and then there's the path spiraling up the mountain. And it's our intention to talk about both of those elements. Now, even though the mountain is the most important part, I'm going to argue, uh, we're actually going to talk about it toward the end of this series. Let's save the mountain for later. This episode, the next two are all going to all be about the path itself, because the path is made up of three distinct parts, and we need to understand all of them. Now, allow me to clarify for the sake of our mental picture. When I say that the path is made of three distinct parts, I'm not suggesting that the first third of the path is one part, and then the second third is the next, you know, in the middle part of the mountain, and the final third at the top of the mountain is the last part. That's not the right idea. So here's how the path works. I don't know if you've ever personally climbed a mountain, but some of the hike is often relatively easy. It's flatter ground that's pretty simple to traverse. However, other parts of the climb are far more strenuous, and still other parts will likely require ropes and specialized gear. So imagine with me that as you start up this mountain, the first part of the hike is relatively even. It's more of a walk than a climb. But then you round a bend, and the path becomes steeper, and there are roots and boulders covering the path. And then before you know it, you round another bend, and you have to literally climb hand over foot to get to the next part of the path. However, when you reach the top of that rock face, you notice that the path evens out again for a while, and it's flatter and easier. But then sooner than before, you encounter more rough terrain that again leads to a finger-straining, sweat-inducing, heart-pounding climb. And as you traverse this mountain path, you will find that this progression from easy to difficult to very hard repeats over and over as you near the top. Of course, if you're picturing the same type of mountain I'm picturing, you should also notice that the spiral becomes narrower and narrower as you reach the top. That means a couple interesting things. First, those three different terrains are changing with greater frequency. It also means that even the smooth terrain is more challenging than it was near the bottom of the mountain. Now, this is the most basic picture of the discipleship spiral, a winding path that encircles a large mountain, slowly leading you to the top. So now let's zoom in real close and investigate the first third of our discipleship journey. In order to understand the path of a disciple, let's remind ourselves again that to be a disciple is to learn. But what exactly does it mean to learn? Well, most dictionaries define learning as the acquisition of knowledge, and that's a fair start. But here's the definition I like best. Learning is the process of acquiring information, systematizing it, and using it. And for the disciple of Christ, we could say that learning is the process of acquiring information about God, systematizing it, and then using it for his glory. And the three parts of that definition represent the three stages we will encounter as we spiral up the mountain. Therefore, the very first steps every disciple of Christ must take involve the acquisition of knowledge about God. We see this truth all throughout scriptures. We see God teaching Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden about himself. Proverbs is filled with teaching concerning the importance of knowledge in our lives. Jesus commands all of his disciples to teach others, aka impart knowledge to them, and the list goes on and on. But in order to understand this first third of the discipleship spiral, we need to know what knowledge actually is. Knowledge is defined as acquaintance with facts, truths, or principles, as from study or investigation, and that matches up well with the dictionary definition of learning. So though I'm going to really oversimplify this next part, don't miss what I'm trying to help us learn. Think of your brain as a box. The knowledge is the stuff in the box that can be retrieved from the box. It's the information in the brain that we have the ability to access at any time. 
Now, I would argue that if you don't know something, it's because that information was either never in the box in the first place, or you had it in your box at one point, but it's since been removed, or it's so buried that you can't find it. That's why I'm going to say that to truly know something requires that you do not forget the information. You need to be able to readily access the information from the box in order to say that you really know it. So, let me think. Do I really know what God taught me about himself when I was in church two years ago? Well, I might be able to figure it out. That would be akin to digging around in the box to locate the information. But I may find that no matter how much I dig, I'll never retrieve the information. Now, what's really interesting is that if I dig and dig and have no memory of what I learned that Sunday, if someone were to remind me what the preacher said, I might immediately remember with great clarity the truth I learned. And that's the amazingness of the brain that makes it so much cooler than some old box. In fact, there are scientists who say that our brains actually store 100% of everything we perceive. And then the question just really is how to access it. But for the purposes of this study, to know something is to possess it in a way that it can be retrieved when necessary. Now, why is that important? Well, because I've asked many a counselee to answer a question and I received this response. Well, I know the answer, I just can't remember it right now. Or I know the answer, I just can't verbalize it. Well, then I would say, what good is having the information if you can't find it? Or what good is having the information if you can't use it? It's like knowing you have just the right tool for the job, but you can't find it anywhere in the mess that is your garage, so you have to go out and buy another one. And then by the end of your life, you end up owning 18 of the same tool because you use it so infrequently that you never remember where you put it, and so when it comes time to use it, you always have to find another one. And we do the same thing with the truth about God that we've heard. Yeah, we know we encountered that truth somewhere before, but we haven't used it since, and we have no idea where to find it, and we're stuck having to learn it all over again. Either that or just maybe not applying the truth in our lives at all in the first place. Now, this level of learning is most often associated with just rote memorization, you know, taking knowledge, putting it in the box that I can pull back out at any time. And don't get me wrong, memorization is a very important part of the learning process. In fact, I believe memorizing the truth of God is more important than most people realize. But at the same time, memorization is not the most important part. Why is that? Well, because without the next two parts of the spiral, memorization is pretty pointless. In fact, without the next two parts of the disciple's journey, a collection of facts about God can actually just make us arrogant and useless. This is all very important, especially for people who have been influenced by the American way of thinking. Most Americans have the idea that learning is intimately attached to school, and school is a place where we get through it by absorbing the least amount of information as possible in order to regurgitate it on a test so that we can probably forget it until our teachers have to teach it to us all over again next year. But we must never approach the learning of a disciple in that way. Yes, collecting facts, experiencing reality, and learning truth is absolutely imperative if we hope to change and grow and mature as a disciple of Christ, but there is so much more to learning than just collecting facts about God. However, we'll talk about all those other parts next time and the time after that. For now, let's understand the importance of acquiring the knowledge of God in the first place. To that end, we're going to consider the nature of the knowledge of God, the source of the knowledge of God, the rejection of the knowledge of God, and the acquisition of the knowledge of God. Number one, the nature of the knowledge of God. As always, it's very important to define our terms. We may think we understand what a word means to us and to other people, but it's desperately important to discover what God intended the word to mean and therefore adopt his understanding. So let's start with the fact that A, the knowledge of God is good. Proverbs 19.2 says it is not good for a person to be without knowledge. Many people actually despise knowledge. Those people are not disciples. Some people don't actually hate knowledge so much as they hate the process of acquiring it. 
Others believe that a person with more knowledge than everyone else is too big for their britches. And still others are afraid of certain knowledge, believing that learning such knowledge will actually corrupt the one who learns it. But knowledge in and of itself is always good, especially the knowledge of God. And why is it good? Well, B, the knowledge of God is power. My friends, in many ways, Sir Francis Bacon was right when he said, Ipsa scientiae protestis est, which means knowledge itself is power. But this truth is far older than Bacon, all right? In Proverbs 24, 5, we read, A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. Knowledge increases power. Literally, this means knowledge gives strength to power. It makes power more powerful. So how powerful is knowledge? Well, in Proverbs 13, 16, we read that every prudent man acts with knowledge. It's impossible to be sensible and shrewd without knowledge. But consider Proverbs 3, 20. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. God applied his knowledge to the creation of the universe. Well, that's pretty powerful. The word power used in Proverbs 24, 5 can refer to might and wealth on one hand or the simple ability to do something on the other, which you would imagine that might and wealth gives you the ability to do something. And that's what knowledge is. If you don't know how to add, you're powerless to use addition. And the same is true for spiritual realities. In Romans 10, 14, we read, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The spiritual ability to enter into a saving relationship with God is impossible unless someone teaches us about God, about our sin, and about the salvation offered through Jesus Christ's substitutionary life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Therefore, knowledge is good because knowledge gives us the ability to do things we should. Therefore, sometimes our problems as disciples of Christ are actually just issues of ignorance. Yes, misunderstanding and rebellion are also huge problems in our lives and the lives of our students and counselees and church family and children. But both misunderstanding and rebellion actually require some sort of knowledge in order to do it, to misunderstand or rebel. But there are many issues in each of our lives that are simply a lack of knowledge. We simply don't know enough about God's character, deeds, and expectations. If we knew what to do, many of us would do it, but we don't know. So this means that if we're afraid of knowledge, or we hate the acquisition of knowledge, or we've convinced ourselves that we don't need more knowledge, or we're just too lazy to get that knowledge, we're lying to ourselves about the nature of knowledge, and we're literally handicapping ourselves as disciples of Christ. In addition, disciples of Christ need to understand that because knowledge of God is both good and powerful, let her see the knowledge of God can save. Proverbs 11.9, With his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Every situation in which we find ourselves is a situation that requires us to make a Christ-honoring decision. Are we going to worship God or worship self? Therefore, being able to make the right decision will save me from the heartaches that come from displeasing my God, and my decision to submit to God will save me from an eternity separated from Him. This is why, letter D, the knowledge of God is valuable. Proverbs 8.10, Take my instruction and not my silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. Because knowledge is so good, and because it enables us to serve God better, and because it saves us from making bad decisions that can negatively affect every area of our lives, the knowledge of God is far more valuable than money. Ignorant people win the lottery all the time, and that money accomplishes absolutely nothing of value as it's wasted away. As disciples of Christ, we need to believe that knowledge is to be desired more than material possessions. Knowledge for knowledge's sakes is not the point, but it is the ever-important starting point for the discipleship spiral because we can't be a student without bathing in information. So, since knowledge is good, powerful, saving, and therefore valuable, it's necessary to ask, where do we find knowledge? 
So we now need to consider, number two, the source of the knowledge of God. In Proverbs 2.6, we read, From the Lord's mouth comes knowledge. Proverbs 22.20-21 says, I, Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer him who sent you? God is the source of all truth. God is the way, the truth, and the life. The sum of his word is truth. There is no truth that isn't God's truth. This is why absolute truth absolutely exists. There is right and there is wrong. There is truth and there are lies. Lies are a creation of Satan, but all truth radiates from God. This is why the knowledge of God is so good and powerful. Lies are falsehoods. When you think you know something, but that something is a lie, you not only don't possess knowledge, you possess anti-knowledge. The lie steals from your store of knowledge by convincing you to jettison facts and substitute them for falsehoods. And in the same way that knowledge is good and powerful, lies are bad and damaging. And the Bible has a lot to say about people who substitute truth for lies. So let's talk about what happens when we don't gather information the way a good disciple should. Number three, the rejection of knowledge. Proverbs one twenty two. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Anyone who would take a bar of pure gold and substitute it for a common ordinary rock is a fool. Only someone bereft of common sense would make such a detrimental decision. Anyone have to be an even bigger fool who would, standing there empty-handed, refuse to accept a bar of gold being offered to him for free. But we do this every single day. Children in particular are actually really good at this because they're born into this world with foolishness knotted up in their hearts. They regularly substitute the good and powerful knowledge of God for impotent, destructive lies. But adults do it all the time, too. And the Bible has a lot to say about the consequences of rejecting knowledge. Proverbs 19.27 tells us, Cease listening, my sons, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. I know this sounds simple and even a bit redundant, but when you reject knowledge, you won't gain knowledge. I think we all understand the concept that we don't know what we don't know, but have you ever really watched a life implode due to a person's inability to know what they don't know? It's really tragic. It's like a person with cancer who rejects life-saving treatments, believing that the unhealthy lifestyle that caused the cancer in the first place would cure her. But all it does is quicken her death. It's so sad. In my years of ministry as a biblical counselor, I've watched a heartbreaking number of people cease listening to teaching only to stray more and more from the words of knowledge. And all the while, those same people believed they were smart for rejecting what they'd heard. They believed they had the right answers. Only one day they found out that they had destroyed themselves by rejecting the knowledge of God. Consider Proverbs 1, 29-33. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Okay, so here we are, followers of Christ walking together along the pathway of discipleship. The first stretch requires us to seek out and learn the truth of God. And yes, compared to the second and third phases of our discipleship, the learning phase is the easiest. The learning part of the journey is smoother and flatter. All we have to do is open God's Word and start reading it. All it takes is turning on our minds while the preacher is preaching, the counselor is counseling, the speaker is speaking, and the teacher is teaching, actively trying to learn everything we can about our great God. It might involve taking notes. It might involve going back and listening again. It might involve rote memorization. Because learning is not a passive endeavor, 
you do have to put one foot in front of the other. And in order to move along this part of the path, you actually have to be adding to your stores of knowledge. As you look up the path, you'll notice that there are people who are farther along than you. Well, for the sake of this illustration, those people simply know more than you do. If you want to catch up with them, all you have to do is continue learning more and more about God's character, deeds, and expectations for us. And like I said, the learning part of the path is much easier than the second and third parts of the path, and we'll discover why this is the case in the next couple episodes. But even though I've suggested that the learning phase of the discipleship spiral is the easiest, well, I know that many of you may not look at learning that way, right? When we compare learning with mindless entertainment and amusement, learning seems really hard. And you're right, putting one foot in front of another up a mountain pass takes more work than sitting on a couch binge-watching the newest Marvel iteration. But compared to the more strenuous parts of being a disciple, learning the truths of God really is the easiest part. So if you already enjoy learning, or you're recognizing that you need to accept what God says about learning and start appreciating it and doing it in the way he commands, you're ready for this last bit of truth. Number four, the acquisition of the knowledge of God. This is our final point for the day, but there are four short sub-points to understand as we discuss the acquisition of knowledge. So here we go. Letter A, we need to want the knowledge of God. Proverbs 15, 14, the mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge. Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. We absolutely must desire knowledge, and we have to teach our fellow disciples to value it as well. This starts with how we approach the knowledge of God. Listen, if you are an unteachable person, you're not only failing God in your own discipleship journey, you're also teaching those around you to be better fools. You're discipling them to be bad disciples. Not only do we owe it to God to be eternal, zealous students, we owe it to our fellow disciples to teach them how to love learning. But we also need to realize that, B, we need to work for the knowledge of God. Proverbs 2, 1-5, through My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Like I said earlier, learning is often harder than amusement. And if we want to do it well, we'll need to really apply ourselves, especially as we get higher up the mountain and the information we're learning becomes broader and deeper. That's why we need to apply ourselves. We're not going to just absorb knowledge by sitting brainlessly in church. We need to lean forward, be attentive, and actively work to learn. Proverbs 22, 17, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my truth. And Proverbs 10, 14, wise men store up knowledge. As we're going to learn in the following episodes, all the knowledge we gain makes it easier to learn more knowledge. And the farther we move up the discipleship spiral, the easier it will be to gain more and more knowledge as we go. Now, a person who values the knowledge of God and is prepared to work for it is going to make some important life choices. Letter C, we need to reject that which doesn't give us the knowledge of God. Proverbs 14.7, leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. This is a huge point we really can't take the time to discuss today. This point has everything to do with your influences. Many of God's people are foolish because they surround themselves with fools. Their friends, their entertainment, even their teachers and mentors are biblical fools. How could we ever expect that we're going to become wise surrounded by all that? We need to reject everything that lies to us. Now, we don't have time to be lied to. We need to be learning the things of God. We don't have time to have our learning stripped away and replaced by anti-knowledge. Instead, letter D, we need to run after that which does provide the knowledge of God. Proverbs 15, 2, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. 
Proverbs 15, 7, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, but the hearts of fools are not so. Instead of surrounding ourselves with fools, we need to be enveloped by wise men and women who will help us learn. And here's our final point for today. If we're serious about learning everything God has for us, we need to run toward discipline. There are four stages of biblical discipline, but the first two stages are instruction and reproof. Disciples of Christ will run toward instruction. That's obvious. Proverbs 21.11, when the scoffer is punished, the naive becomes wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. But we also need to run toward reproof. Reproof is being told that we're wrong. Proverbs 19.25, strike a scoffer and the naive may become shrewd, but reprove one who has understanding and he will gain knowledge. It takes a lot of humility and maturity, but a teachable disciple is thankful when someone tells him he's wrong. Christ honoring reproof says, I know you thought what you did was a good idea, but it was wrong. Reproof is providing the knowledge that the individual was functioning off a lie instead of truth. And when a wise man is reproved, he gains that knowledge. He learns the lesson. That's why today's episode was entitled The Zealous Student. We should be passionate about learning everything we can about God. So that, my friends, is the first part of the discipleship spiral. Now, I say first part. Please understand, we'll encounter this part again and again and again as we go up the discipleship spiral up the mountain. I say it's the first part because it is literally the first part we step our feet onto as disciples. But don't think that we're never going to have to do this again. Like, we learn and then we're done learning and we move on. No, all right? This is the first part, but it's still an important part that we'll encounter over and over again. The knowledge of God is good. It's powerful. It saves and it's valuable. And this makes sense because it flows from God himself. And only a fool would reject the knowledge of God because only a fool would invite destruction into his life. But wise people value knowledge. They work for it and they work hard for it. Disciples of Christ are willing to reject everything that's going to lie to them and instead surround themselves with that which provides even more knowledge of God, even if that means spending time with people who love them enough to tell them they're wrong. Listen, as disciples of Christ, we need more knowledge about God. Now, again, the mere acquisition of knowledge from the Bible shouldn't be our highest goal, but it's absolutely the vital first step for each disciple. So please share this episode with your fellow disciples. Invite them to learn right along with you. And make sure you share this episode with your pastor, your church friends, and anyone else who professes to be a follower of God. And if you need some specific assistance in truly appreciating the value of the knowledge of God, please contact us at counselor at celebrationofgod.com or give us a call at 828-423-0894. I'm really excited about continuing this series with you, and I hope you'll join us next time as we seek to better know, love, and worship God and help the people in our lives do the same. To that end, we'll be discussing The Discerning Researcher, The Discipleship Spiral, Part 3. If you want to know God better, celebrate Him more, and help the ones you love to do the same, subscribe to this podcast and visit celebrationofgod.com to learn more about this dynamic discipleship resource. And remember, the Celebration of God is a listener-supported ministry.